first, please could you introduce yourself and tell us a little about your background and current roles? So my name is Dr Jean-Pierre Lynn. I'm a child neurologist, 20 years at Guy's and St Thomas's NHS Foundation Trust. Uh, I'm part of the Evelina Children's Hospital. Uh, and before that, I trained largely in Edinburgh, working on uh, long-standing uh, motor disorders in children, typically cerebral palsy, um, with Keith Brown and Jeffrey Walsh. So I have a long interest in the physiology of movement and the uh, different strategies that we've been grappling with to try and ameliorate lead a, a multidisciplinary team called the Complex Motor Disorders Service and um, it's been brought together specifically for the purposes of uh, screening children who are potential candidates for neuromodulation via deep brain stimulation and it's a complex process we have children coming from all over the United Kingdom including Ireland and sometimes from abroad and um, this is um, a big deal for all of the families coming from so far away with many expectations and our plan has been to uh, evaluate the pathophysiology in those children with a view to arriving at the most comprehensive set of pre-DBS criteria that are likely to confer the best outcome or the most favourable outcome uh, and therefore to uh, carefully match up the goal setting and the individual prognosis for each child. So I consider this as a, a project in um, personalised medicine that includes the etiology of the motor disorder, which is principally dystonia, including the genetics, if we can get it, the physiological parameters that define the systems, and the radiological parameters that define the structures. And by radiology, conventional MRI, conventional MRI scans, as well as um, advanced functional scans known as positron emission tomography which involves a small amount of radioactive um, labelled sugar that allows us to uh, define to what extent the brain distributed systems are active in a state of um, controlled rest. And so you're speaking here today about how deep brain stimulation can be used to target symptoms in children with cerebral palsy. Can you tell us a little more about this? Yes, we've, we've done over 150, possibly 160 children. Um, we've offered them deep brain stimulation. And um, this spans the whole spectrum from the well-characterised uh, genetic dystonias such as um, torsion A mutation dystonia known as the EYT1 through, through myoclonic dystonia um, some of the other so-called primary dystonias um, and then of course all the different cerebral palsies and we have uh, more than a dozen scales that we've been using to characterize their, uh, their motor state so the gross motor state 
which relates to mobility, their manual ability, functional system, which relates to the manual use and the communication functions. We've used um, different, very detailed methods for evaluating um, each of the motor functions and also um, to evaluate goals that are set during the negotiation of goals. The neuromodulation that we offer is not you know, a drive-through surgical admission. Mm. Come along, have your DBS, go back to wherever you live and, and then it's up to the rest of the world to, to do what they can mm. with that result. We do very close follow-up. I think it's very much uh, a Rolls-Royce service in the sense that if you, put, if you implant a, um, a stimulator in the child, uh, you have to oversee its functioning and determine the if efficacy of that stimulator mm -hmm. in the child, um, which is why we have um, periodic reviews so that we can do all that. Follow on from that, what are the differences or perhaps the challenges in treating children using deep brain stimulation compared with adults? Right, well, the, 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 the biggest challenge is that by, by and large the children um, who require deep brain stimulation with severe dystonic choreathetosis have had the disorder from very early on in life. So immediately this raises the issue that the normal developmental profile is not being followed. Um, so that as the neuromodulation takes effect, what is revealed is a relatively often primitive motor system. Mm. The motor system that has not been through the stages of development. So I like to think about development as the motor money in the bank which after you develop dystonia um, is still locked away potentially so that when you relieve the dystonia through neuromodulation that motor function is all ready and waiting. Mm. Uh, so there's a big difference and that, that means that the timing of onset has a profound effect on the likely benefits of deep brain stimulation and um, certainly our view that early delivery of neuromodulation is very important to prevent the advent of comorbidities. Okay. Now comorbidity could be something as difficult as contractures and deformities and we found that about 50% of our children with early onset dystonia who present to us at the age of five have got contractures and deformities. Mm. Now many centres, many families are only thinking about neuromodulation after the age of five because they're waiting for the natural history of their child's disorder to improve spontaneously. Mm. And a five-year-old child is not considered to be a very old child in many people's standards. But when we receive five-year-olds, half of those have already got contractures and deformities. Um, so by the time they're 10 or 15, you've got 80% contracture and deformity. We're racing against time here mm. to stop the dystonia imposing skeletal deformations. That's on the physical front, but then you've got the comorbidity of the lack of opportunity 
the lack of independence, the lack of ability to be in a position to problem solve for a variety of daily tasks. And that lack of experience of doing this results in a profound processing problem, uh, which of course leads to dependence. Um, for a long time we've realised that uh, when a child is independently mobile, they use that mobility as an exploratory tool and that actually informs the brain and supports the different exploratory structures mm -hmm. as well as um, problem-solving abilities. Um, so we often have this argument or discussion with families who um, are fearful that if their child is given a wheelchair then they won't want to walk. But we explain to them that mobility, which is getting from A to B and being independently mobile in getting from A to B, allows the other brain functions that are to do with associations mm. and maps and representations and success, failure, timing. All of these are cognitive processes. Mm. So by depriving the child of the ability to um, either self-propel or use a powered wheelchair, for instance, they are actually depriving the child of that exploratory mm. behaviour which shapes thinking. Um, the message we've learned from um, 12 years of neuromodulation in children is that um, if you've got long-standing dystonia, you, the child isn't going to wake up and find that the dystonia has gone away. Mm. Uh, in fact, we found that the dystonia becomes more severe with the passage of time. Um, and we also know that conventional management strategies using pharmacological agents uh, has the limited capacity for symptom relief. And we've um, participated in a, a, a multi-centre study or review of options. In fact, there's several of these are now being published. One's in The Lancet. Um, and um, others uh, another is going to appear in the Lancet for dyskinetic cerebral palsy. Um, one's going to appear in developmental medicine and child neurology on a dystonia care pathway, which um, simply says that what's out there is 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 left rather wanting. But deep brain stimulation is coming out as the clear winner in terms of. Um, dystonia relief and possible functional benefit. You're now in the final year of your term as president of the um, British Paediatric Neurology Association. What would you say has been your highlight? I, I'd like to say that um, being the president of anything is, is quite an interesting process. Mm. How shall I put it? You want to do as much for the many, not the few, which is a <laughs> phrase that has been used quite recently. Um, a, a, a couple of highlights are that um, I've been the local organiser for the 2018 uh, BPNA annual conference which is going to take place in the Waterloo campus, uh, the Franklin Wilkins building in London um, on the 3rd, 4th and 5th of January um, and I've been very fortunate in having an ambitious programme accepted by the scientific committee of the BPNA. Um, which likes to do things correctly. And this means that this conference is going to, um, for the first time in the history of the BBNA, have a big focus on uh, clinical practice sessions mm. in terms of hot topics and controversies. 
So we're going to have, over a course of three days, four, pa four parallel clinical practice sessions per day. And three of those are going to involve um, neuromodulation in some way, mm. across the spectrum of, of neuromodulation. Um, but also it's going to allow people to um, come and learn and think, share ideas, but also explore fields that are a little bit unknown to them. So that's very important. We're going to have the usual opportunity to present new work as a scientific meeting. Um, and we're going to have opportunities for our clinical research networks to get together and discuss things. So that's the second thing that I'd, I'm proud of is, is the, the idea that we should upgrade what we have previously called special interest groups into a clinical research network because I think that as an organisation that uh, represents all the child neurologists in the United Kingdom and those working, many of those working in neurodisability. Um, we have a, a duty to keep up to date and promote better practice. So a clinical research network is an appropriate system for doing this. And we have, you know, um, neurovascular network for stroke in children. Mm. There's new guidelines for the management of acute stroke in children just come out in May. We have neuromuscular networks, epilepsy networks, uh, neuroinflammatory network, and uh, a, a movement disorders clinical mm. research network. So, obviously, I've got a vested interest. Um, I want the movement disorders clinical research network to prosper, to acquire a portfolio of studies. I want every child neurologist involved in movement disorders in the UK to feel part of that network, a vital node on the network as I call it, both in terms of referring to more specialist centres but also in um, providing local demographic information. What's important as an as a organisation is that we can demonstrate that uh, the practitioners and the trainees are playing an important role in the future of neuroscience mm -hmm. um, and we want to interact with the NHS as closely as possible as possible, and other organisations in the interest of the neuroscience. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think that um, my role has been to um, try and expand the horizons of the BPNA in attracting new partners uh, to develop the projects that we want, research fellowships, bespoke projects in specific areas, support the life of the child neurologist, uh, as well as maintain the standards in child neurology. So the General Medical Council is um, putting out a new approach to defining the curriculum of a specialist, or the syllabus of a specialist. And I've been involved with colleagues in looking at the syllabus along with the Royal College of paediatrics and child health and it's quite clear that um, we're very keen in child neurology that the specialist training isn't, isn't dumbed down but allows the full opportunity of uh, young talented clinicians getting involved in child neurology and having the best opportunity to actually learn the skills and the knowledge set uh, and, the, and, and develop the competence to be practicing neurologists. Um, and we hope that it's not going to end up being 
whittled down to a one-size-fits-all um, of relative ignorance. So those are the kinds of things that um, have been interesting as present. I think a novel thing has been to bring the BPNA to the European Euro Convention. Mm. Because it's quite clear that um, there are a lot of people working in the field of neuroscience, in the field of chronic neurodisability. Mm. Um, and we need partnerships to help um, bring this field forward. The BPNA has got a very long tradition in um, running courses that are distance learning courses that has currently 12 units that is expanding um, for, the, for training in child mm -hmm. neurology as well as specialist epilepsy courses, headache courses and so on. And all these are run both in the United Kingdom and also abroad in resource rich and resource poor countries. So we've got a very strong educational and training track record um, and that's what's chiefly at our stand at mm. the European Euro Convention and we're hoping that people will, will see that and think well we could partner with this organisation that has got such strong educational training credentials mm. really. And people have in fact said, you know, it's time I had an update on this. Yeah. I'd like, we'd like to know a little bit more about this. Um, where a CCG will be dealing with disability and mental health, these materials and opportunities could be quite good for our, um, for our members yeah. to attend. So I think coming to a, a meeting like this, uh, which is a combination of a trade fair and a, a scientific you know, peppered with scientific seminars is a good is a good is a good place to be really. Great and thank you very much and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for listening to this podcast from NeuroCentral. You can find more podcasts plus the latest news, free journal articles, interviews and opinion pieces from across neurology and neuroscience at www.neuro-central.com.